chapter 2. Let's pray before we dig in tonight. Lord, again, we just uh, desire for the one who inspired the word, who breathed it out to those holy men of God and carried them along by the Holy Spirit so that they could pen these words, uh, Lord, so that you would be speaking to us as we read them. Lord, just everything that you desire to reveal about yourself, uh, you've revealed in Son and through your Son and through the, the Holy Scriptures. And so, God, we just come tonight as gleaners, uh, just ready to um, pluck and pick and, and to take home and chew, Lord, and, and to digest these glorious truths this evening. Lord, uh, we have much to learn, God. We have much to be taught from you, Lord. We want to be equipped, and we want to hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. Uh, Lord, we want to be just made ready to go out and, uh, and herald your word, Lord. So teach us from it tonight, and uh, we just give you all glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2 Uh, The subject or title for the evening is that Jesus is superior to the angels because of his humanity, or he's better than the angels because he became a man. Now, uh, Spurgeon in his early years uh, writings says, I have a very lively or rather deadly recollection of a certain series of discourses on the Hebrews which made a deep impression of my mind of the most undesirable kind. I wish frequently that the Hebrews had kept the epistle to themselves, for it sadly bored this poor Gentile lad. And uh, I, I'm confident that that's not going to be our heart as we go through the scriptures. I am not bored at all by this scripture. And I know that Spurgeon later on, in fact, I read one of his sermons this evening, and uh, there's no form of being bored by the epistle of somebody (laughs) to the Hebrews. And uh, last week we looked at Jesus being better and superior uh, to the prophets. Now, why are we on this theme of Jesus being better? Uh, You'll remember from last week that there was a group of Hebrew Christians, of Messianic Jews, who had begun to be persecuted for their faith in Christ. Uh, They'd come out of Jewish homes, Jewish families, uh, Jewish practices and, and culture and worship uh, that's, that, uh, worship practices that had gone on for thousands of years and had been given by the Lord himself. Uh, and so as these Christians had begun to be persecuted, some by their own parents, by their own communities, being kicked out of the synagogues, being uh, disowned by dads and moms, and, and uh, it was beginning to get rough. It was beginning to get tough for these Hebrew Christians. And so many of them were beginning to turn back away from Christ and go back to Judaism to to escape a hard life. And uh, and so this theme that the author has is don't go back. Don't turn away. And he, he goes on this discourse for 13 chapters to show us that Jesus, the Messiah, is better than anything that the Jewish religion could throw at you. Now, Everything the Jewish religion could throw at you is, is great and awesome. But Jesus is some, a, kind of a term we've learned and been using here. He's the true and better fulfillment of all of those things. All of these things have pointed to Jesus. And so uh, the author, and you'll have to forgive me if I ever throw out that it's Paul. I, I don't 100% believe that it was Paul, but, you know, people do that. Okay, we got Frank over here on this camp. Let's divide the church over it right now. And... and uh, but um, it, it'll probably slip every now and then, or I might say that it was Apollos. But um, we see right away in the first three verses of chapter 1 that Jesus is better than the prophets. The prophets were great. God spoke through the prophets. But the writer says that in these days, he's spoken to us in his son, through his son. And, uh, and that's a much better means of communication, having God himself just be right there, eye to eye, face to face, sitting in a boat on the Sea of Galilee and speaking out to the amphitheater and, and, and speaking to a bunch of eyewitnesses who would carry that message on to the uttermost parts of the earth. But we also see, saw that uh, Jesus was better than the angels. Now, uh, the Jewish people loved the angels. They considered the angels to be somewhat of a mediator between God and man. They, they 
borderline, if not full-on, idolized angels. And so Jesus takes the, the, the latter portion of chapter 1 and chapter 2 to say, hey, Jesus is better than the best angel. And the reasons for that in chapter 1 was because he is God and he created the angels. And we see in chapter 1 this beautiful discourse on the deity of Jesus Christ, especially in verses 8 through 10, radical verses there where um, God the Father calls God the Son God, calls him Lord. These are very powerful scriptures that we looked at last week, and, uh, and we'll look at again this week, that Jesus is better than the angels, but not because he's God this time, not because he's deity, but because he became a man. The superiority of Christ to the angels is demonstrated in the Old Testament verses that we read in chapter 1, verses 4 through 14, and in his humanity, chapter 2, verses 5 through through 18. And between these two arguments that he uses of Jesus being better than angels is a first warning passage that we'll come across that's going to address drifting away. Now remember, there's five big passages in the book of Hebrews that are called warning passages to this group who would turn away from Christ, a profession of Christ, and go back to uh, the Hebrew religion, sin Christ, without Christ, okay? For some reason, I wanted to slip into Portuguese right there. Sin Christ, okay? That's, that's not Portuguese at all. Chapter 1 tells us the deity of Jesus makes him better than the angels. Chapter 2 tells us the humanity of Jesus makes him better than the angels. In verse 1 of chapter 2, we read, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. And so it's at this point that the author gives his first warning, which concerns drifting away. The readers are exhorted to give heed to the things they've learned. And and what things? What's the therefore that we just read about? Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than, than the angels. And because of all that, because of the doctrine that we learned last week, we need to pay major attention and stay in major focus so that we don't drift away from the faith we found in Jesus Christ. Verses 1 through 4 are a vital warning of a danger of neglecting our salvation. There's this interruption in an argument of Jesus' superiority for a warning. A warning concerning drifting. need to give very careful attention to the things that we have heard, the things that we have learned in the scriptures, lest we drift away from them. You guys know the song, Give me the beat, boys, and free my soul. I want to get lost in your rock and roll and drift away. That's exactly what the Hebrews were singing right here. When I taught the school of ministry, I actually sang it to them. But you are not as blessed tonight. You don't get that. Sorry, guys. Drifting away. I want you to just maybe close your eyes and think of whatever picture you can that would describe something drifting off, drifting away. The language speaks of carelessly passing by. Carelessly passing by or slipping away. It's that scene from Titanic at the very end where Leonardo DiCaprio just kind of, there he goes. Not that I've ever seen it. I figured some sinners would, you know, I'm kidding. Drifting is a slow, quiet, hard to recognize movement. By the time you've realized you've drifted, you're already off course. Anybody in the room ever drifted before in a boat and like all of a sudden you look up and you're like way farther away than you thought you'd anyone ever spend any time on the beach or in the ocean and you're like, holy cow, how did I get down here? No, nobody, me neither. So landlocked town called Prineville. This isn't a, a dramatic 90 degree turn that happened in these lives, these Hebrew lives. This, it wasn't some blatant crossroads where it was like, all right, left or right? Which road do we take? The road less traveled or what here? You know, we got to make a choice. We got to make a decision. No, what was happening was a drifting that came from paying no attention. 
from neglect. And how sad it is that Christians don't realize the magnitudes of the words that are spoken by the Lord, taking heed to the word of God and and saturating themselves with the scriptures that they might have a compass to go by and they just carelessly drift away. We've seen it, haven't we? We've seen it. You've seen it. I know you people. We've seen it. And it grieves our heart to consider those people that have just forgotten the scriptures. And you present them the scriptures, don't you? What about this? And what about this? You know what? No. I don't even want to hear that. I want to do what I want to do. And I'm going to do it. They carelessly, it didn't start that day. It started months ago, years ago, where they substituted humanism, human wisdom, the desire for themselves to succeed for the truth that we have and the and the instruction that we have, and the gospel that will see us finish strong. There's a book, and I know some of you have uh, read it. It's a book called Unbreakable, and it's by Laura Hildebrand. It's the same lady that wrote Seabiscuit. And in this book, you've got to check it out. I think it's in the library here. Uh, It has an incredible conclusion. There's a reason it's in our library. It's the incredible story of Louis, uh, Louis Zamperini, Uh, The first part of the book tells about his track abilities as a runner and how he would end up uh, taking a a great prize in the German Olympics, the Berlin Olympics in the 1930s. Uh, But later on in his life, he would go on to be in World War II and be a uh, navigator in a B-24 Liberator as he and his buddies took off from Hawaii one day to go rescue a downed plane. They found themselves to be a downed plane. And he was miraculously freed from, am I, is it spoiler alert? You're not going to read it, Erica. Come on, listen. Come on, seriously? I'm not telling it all because trust me, there's more than my little orange paragraph here has to say about it. But he's miraculously, I mean, this is like in page three. So if I'm spoiling it already, it's like, all right. He's freed from the plane miraculously. He has cables from the plane wrapped around his neck and he's sucked under the water and he's able by some angelic force to breathe the water and come up out of the water and be saved. And you'll see at the end of the book why he was saved that day. Anyways, he ends up getting in a life raft that came up out of the plane with two other guys. I'm not going to tell you who or how many survived that, uh, that ordeal, but um, the rest of the ordeal anyways. He ends up spending 47 days adrift in a rescue raft with uh, these other men where they would survive on fish and seagulls and any rainwater that they could capture. And they began to float away, just miles away from Hawaii. They began to float. They began to drift. And they would end up drifting over 2,300 miles to the Japanese-occupied Marshall Islands. This took 47 days, and they would end up setting the world record for people surviving in a lifeboat, for the number of days they survived and the number of miles that they would travel. There's much more to read in the book. But besides the book of Hebrews, I'm not sure there's another book that would have more warning for us to those who are in danger of drifting away. Now, these men in the life raft, they had the ability as a navigator to calculate and to know the wind and the currents and to be, I think we're about here, or I think we're about here. But when they ended up seeing land, they said, I had no idea we were here. Some 2,300 miles in a life raft. And that's what happens to Christians that get their eyes off the word of God. They begin to compromise. How do we not drift away? Verse 1 tells us we must pay more careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Whenever an individual drifts away, it starts by them drifting away from the word of God. Then you begin to see them drifting away from fellowship. They're careless and haphazard about a Wednesday night gathering. And pretty soon they're careless and haphazard about a Sunday morning gathering. And pretty soon you don't see them. And pretty soon you see that their life is is that of compromise. It's a life that has drifted away. In chapter 6, verse 1, in a few weeks, we'll read that the author says, don't become lazy about knowing your Bible. I'm paraphrasing that. Don't be lazy about gathering together for 
public worship. Don't become lazy. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Chapter 10 will tell us. If you want to be there in the end, heed this warning. Heed the warning of chapter 2, verse 1. And in verse 2 we read, For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, dot, 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 pause. Stephen says in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, that the Jews received the law under the direction of angels, and they had not kept it. Galatians chapter 3 tells us that it was appointed, the law was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So the law was given through the ministry of angels. And we know in our reading of the Old Testament during the fast that when people would disobey the word of God, there was swift judgment, was there not? There was strict uh, swift rebuke where rebellion would creep into the heart. Now that might mean, uh, you know, it justly they would be put away from the fellowship of the Jews and, and put outside the camp for a certain amount of time. That might mean that they would be stoned with stones. That might mean they or their families or their donkeys would be put to death. Numbers 15 verse 30 speaks of this. Death being cut off from the people. And that's all penalty for disobeying the old covenant that was delivered through means of angels. How much more, verse 3 tells us, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You guys, I want you to contrast that. You've got the old covenant, which is wonderful. It's a tutor that points us to our need for a savior. It's great, but we have here so great a salvation in the new covenant. Verse 3 says, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord. In the gospel accounts, we read that. And then it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Verse 4, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. We have this description of the new covenant. How it was spoken by Christ in verse 3. How it was confirmed by God in verse 4. How it was undergirded by signs and wonders. Now when the angels spoke or when the angels brought the law and there was disobedience, there was that swift judgment, ostracism, death. How much more when there's disobedience to such a great salvation that was spoken forth by God in the flesh on the Sea of Galilee or on the hills of Galilee or on the way from Nazareth through the Valley of the Doves or in Jerusalem on the Mount of Beatitudes, wherever it might have been, or on the Mount of Olives, excuse me, or even from Mount Calvary itself. How much more judgment would there be when one rejects the son there's no place else for them to go there's no other means of salvation and peter said it rightly oh lord to whom else will we go you have the words of eternal life and we see these warnings that if you reject the son there's no chance of salvation there's nowhere else to go as paul argues from the old testament to the new from the promise to the fulfillment of the promise we have such a sobering warning, and it's one of the warnings that we'll get to in our study, but it's in Hebrews 10, 26, where it says, if we, and I want you to flip over there, I want you to, to just look ahead to another warning passage. Hebrews 10, 26, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone, and here's the same argument, anyone who's rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment, do you suppose, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? 
For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. So when we neglect so great a salvation, and this is a a tricky passage, and we're going to get to it in the weeks to come. We're going to get to chapter 6 first, which has a tricky passage. We're going to get to chapter 10, and in about eight weeks, it has this tricky passage. We're going to pull it apart bit by bit. But we see this warning. It's a warning. That's what it is to those that would just be careless about the Christian faith, make light of their salvation in Christ Jesus, or the salvation that's been made available to them in Christ Jesus, to disregard so great a salvation and to say no to Christ. There is nowhere else to go for an atonement of sins but Jesus Christ. Therefore, when you say no to Jesus Christ, you're saying no to to atonement. And spiritual deterioration begins when these Christians would begin to grow careless, make light of their salvation. That language in Hebrews 10 is just grievous, isn't it? Trample the blood of the Son of God underfoot and count that blood of the covenant as just a common thing. This word was spoken by the lord and then taken out by eyewitnesses and all throughout the new testament you read of these eyewitnesses going forth they were in luke chapter one eyewitnesses and ministered of the word that would be delivered to them john chapter one first john rather chapter one verse one john and he john was all about saying i saw it i saw him I handled him. I, I was the one that leaned against his chest at the Last Supper. I was the one whom Jesus loved. I was there. I saw it. And he made a big deal about being an eyewitness. And he says, we heard him. We saw him with our eyes. We've looked upon him. Our hands handled him. I am talking about the word of life. And then those that were eyewitnesses went forth. And man, that's a big dimension of apostolic authority eyewitnesses that's one thing that's one uh, one among about five beautiful things about the canon of scripture that we have is that it was passed down to us from eyewitnesses who wrote about it they wrote about what they saw and we know that when those men went out mark 16 20 bears witness to this they went preaching and the lord worked with them we learned about that on sunday and confirmed their word through accompanying signs, the Gospel of Mark says. It's a good lesson to us that miraculous manifestations were not necessarily to alleviate suffering, but primarily to confirm the word. They were an endorsement of the apostolic ministry that they had. So there's this great exhortation to us of the danger of drifting away. And it's okay to take this and to to look at other Christians' lives. And if you see someone drifting away, say, brother, sister, I'm giving you the same word of exhortation, the same warning that Paul gave uh, the the Hebrews. Did I do it? I did it the first time in our teaching. I did it, Paul. It's not Paul. might not be Paul. I don't know. The author. (laughs) Frank's going to be a fun one, isn't he? (laughs) That the author spoke to the people, hey, You're in a dangerous place, man. I see a neglect over your life of this great salvation. I see a drifting away. And and man, if if I would look at you a year ago, here's where you're at. If I look at you now, man, you are not abiding in Christ. And all I can say is the warning. That's all I can say of these warnings. Man, come back and abide in Christ. This exhortation, reasoning in regards to the penalty of, to disobedience that there's an old testament god of judgment and there's a new testament god of judgment and if the new testament covenant fulfiller of jesus christ is rejected there's a just judgment of that and so paul just no oh, i did it i'm sorry if i do it we'll just ignore it okay we just know that it might not be paul okay are we all there we're all there okay all right Then we jump into verses 5 through 15, kind of this little segue jump to Christ being superior again, to Christ being better again. 
And we look in verses 5 through 15 of Jesus' humanity. Another great point of, of our Christology, okay? Of our studying of Christ. What if God was one of us? A question made famous in a 1996 song by Joan Osborne. What if God was one of us? If God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to his face if you were faced with him in all his glory? If God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see? If seeing meant that you would have to believe in things like heaven and in Jesus and in the saints and all the prophets and then it begins to go into a bit more of a sacrilegious, yeah, yeah, God is great, yeah, yeah, God is good. And then the chorus, what if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. And I always like to sing it, because God was one of us, he became one of us. He condescended to our level for his glory, that he would be glorified through saving us, that he would show how much he loves us. In this warning passage, it moves on to this argument of Jesus' superiority of being a man and being better than the angels because he became fully man, the God-man. The author will use in this section Old Testament scriptures to indicate that in Christ's incarnation, his becoming flesh, he fulfills the messianic and eschatological or end times expectations of subjecting the world to come, the millennial kingdom, under his reign as the son of David. All right? It's through his incarnation and his suffering of death that he would achieve the high place and be crowned in glory and in honor. And while Christ is already exalted and crowned, the full expression of this won't be seen until the arrival of the millennial kingdom that we read about in Revelation chapter 20. Through Christ's humanity, him being flesh, he also achieved this great solidarity with his followers. In chapter 2, verse 10, we'll see it. He's referred in this chapter as our captain, but also as our brother in Hebrews 2. It's through his humanity and his life and his death that he's able to achieve victory over the fallen angel, the devil, and bring about a great salvation. And because of that, because he became flesh, he lived and he died and he resurrected He's able to minister to us as a faithful and merciful high priest. We'll see all that in this chapter. In verse 5, it says, He has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. Christ is superior to the angels, and that's seen in that he is going to rule that kingdom. That's not something that's given to angels and something that's given to the son of david the true and the best son of david the writer's argument in chapter one he's better than the angels because of his deity it raised a new question how can jesus be better than the angels if he had a human body aren't the angels better because they're not limited by human flesh and human emotions and even human temptations and they're not they're not limited by that and that question from the hebrews is answered here in chapter two to, to show us why jesus had to take on a body of flesh first of all we read it was so that he might taste death for everyone in verse six we read one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. This is a quote from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 8. 
So how can Jesus be better than the angels if he was made lower than the angels, we read? That doesn't make any sense. In quoting Psalm 8, we have a double fulfillment, a fulfillment of a picture of humanity created by God. Men placed a little lower than the angels, but also we have a fulfillment in Jesus as he is the representation of humanity, Romans tells us, because he's the new Adam. So we have this ultimate messianic expression in Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 8, that in the Messiah's suffering and in his death, he became lower than the angels. He was going to suffer and die in a way that no angel ever has or ever will. A.W. Pink says, In becoming man, the Lord Jesus took upon himself a nature which was capable of dying. The angels had no such nature, and therefore in his humiliation, he was to be placed lower than they. But we all know it doesn't end there, right? We all know that in his resurrection, he's crowned with glory and honor, just as that messianic psalm pointed to. Death would be put under his feet that day when the tomb was found empty, and Jesus would reign supreme. He'd assume assume this right hand of the Father as a faithful high priest over his people. And verse 8 continues, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. So we have it, the second half of verse 8, the doctrine of the kingdom just kind of laid out for us in simplicity, that the kingdom is already... And what's the other part of the kingdom? Not yet. Okay, are we living in God's kingdom right now? Yes. All right, there's a lot of what we're living in right now that God's kingdom is being shown in power and in glory and in many different ways. And yet we won't see the, the, the fulfillment of that and everything that's been won for us until that day when Jesus comes in his second coming and sets up his kingdom here on the earth. Then it will be yet. It'll be all and totally complete. Right now, we're living in a chess match, all right? And we're at that part of the chess match where Jesus says, check. Okay? The game's over, right? Check. It's like no other sport, right? Like, it's over. I just can tell we're going to win. You know? Yeah, it's, it's check. And when Jesus comes and sets his feet on the Mount of Olives and, and you know, destroys his enemies... He'll say, checkmate, checkmate, all right? It's the mystery of the kingdom. It's the already and the not yet of the kingdom. Right now, the end of verse 8 says, we do not see all things put under him, all right? We don't see the enemy chained or put at the bottomless pit. We know that he's out and about, and he's cruising around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may destroy. Jesus puts the enemy in check. Because he became a little lower than the angels, or literally in the, in the language, it's for a little while lower than the angels. That's where we are as men. Isn't that interesting? We're a little lower than the angels. Not a little higher than the monkeys, mind you. We're a little lower than the angels, than some very glorious, intelligent beings. Verse 9 We see Jesus, but we see Jesus. So we're in this not yet of the kingdom. Don't be discouraged by that. Don't be discouraged by that. Because where do we look? We look to Jesus. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Christ, now made a little lower than the angels for the purpose, we read here, of suffering and death, that he might taste death. Now, I want you to write in in your notes, or if you're taking them, or, or make a mental note, that this word taste means to fill your palate with. Jesus actually filled his palate with death for every man. Now, the word for, for every man, means 
in the place of every man. That's what Jesus has done. He came and he filled his palate with death in the place of every man that would believe upon him. He cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that we will never have to cry it? He came down to our level and really below our level because he served in a way that none of us have ever served. And he died to self in a way that none of us have ever died to self. And Philippians tells us how great a condescension he he gave and he showed when he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death on the cross. I like verse 10, how it starts, how it is fitting for him, or it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It was a very fitting thing. This is the plan of redemption. This is the plan of salvation. It goes together perfectly. Puzzle piece upon puzzle piece. It goes together and is fitting for the creator. Do you get that in verse 10? He's speaking of the creator, and we studied that last week. How it was Jesus who formed all the planets, all the world, all the universe. And here in verse 10, we see that again. He created all things as the creator in his plan to bring many sons to glory. He was made the captain of their salvation, but it was in suffering. It was in suffering that two things happened, that men were brought to glory, and it was through his sufferings that he was just epitomized and and sat in that title and in that role as the captain of salvation. What was Jesus doing tasting death in verse 9? In verse 10, we see it was bringing many sons to glory. That's why he tasted death, even though he was the creator. F.F. Bruce says, the perfect son of God has become his people's perfect savior. Some people get hung up on verse 10 and say, oh, he had to be made perfect, so he was never perfect? And I think Bruce puts it well, that perfect son of God became his people's perfect savior. Jesus was in no need of moral improvement through his sufferings. As Alistair Begg says, there is a perfection that is ready to suffer and a perfection that comes from suffering. Jesus had a perfection that was ready to suffer and then got a perfection from his suffering. In order to be this perfect high priest that we read about in the Old Testament and in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, that high priest had to have an obedience to God. Secondly, he had to have an ability to sympathize with the people whose behalf he represented and he was acting as priest over. Third thing that the priests had to have was a presentation of an offering of atonement to God. And the writer of Hebrews says that only Jesus fulfills this perfectly. It was in his obedience as a man to the death on the cross that he was perfectly suited to be his people's representative. He was made perfect through suffering. But it doesn't mean that Christ was in need of any moral improvement. Rather, that by suffering in this way, Christ was perfectly suited to exercise this office of high priest for his people. By means of his incarnation, by means of his humiliation, by means of his death on our behalf, by means of his obedience to God, and by means of his representation of the people of God. He was made captain of their, of our, if I may interject, of our salvation. I like that. Don't you captain of our salvation? It means pioneer. As Oregonians, we got to love that he was the trailblazer, right? We're too far away from that life, right? It, It speaks of Jesus being the initiator of our salvation. We love him because he first loved us. It speaks speaks of him, Romans 12 tells us that he's the author 
and the perfecter of our faith. Through him tasting death, he became the captain of our salvation. Verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. And you might underline that, all of one. Jesus became man. Blaine. Man of, right? Okay, just because of his beard. Where's John? John! (laughs) We all know you're a man because you got that thing on your face, okay? Adam, well, okay. He made all of us one, all right? He came, and it says he, he sanctified, he showed that we are one, the one that sanctifies us, the one that sets us free, the one that sets us apart from the world is the same for he who, who, for which reason, excuse me, at the end of verse 11, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So the Hebrew is asking, oh, if he's God, then why is he lower than the angels? And why is he calling men brethren? Certainly angels have got to be better. But we see that because he's man, we are of the same family. And because we're of the same family, Jesus isn't ashamed to call men brethren. This isn't even true of us with our own brothers. You know, we show up to a family reunion, it's like, ay, 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 oh, I'm not sure they're even human, <laughs> you know? It's that guy that proves evolution might, no, I'm kidding. Um, not even funny to joke about. We don't make evolution jokes here. Sometimes we're ashamed of Jesus, though when we won't open up our mouth to make known the beauty of the gospel to people. We're ashamed. What's going to happen? I'm ashamed. But Jesus looks at us. But because of his perfection imputed to us, he's not ashamed to call us brethren. Why? Because the payment is complete. In verse 12, the theme of family ties just continues saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. That's Psalm 22, 22, the Psalm of the cross. And again, verse 13, I will put my trust in him. Isaiah 8, 17. And again, here am I and the children from whom God has given me. Just a reminder that these Old Testament passages, they all speak of Christ. We're brothers of Christ. We're children of Christ. John chapter 1, verse 12 says that as many as received him, To him he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but from God. And because we're brethren, because we're children, we have freedom in verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So by becoming a man and dying and and being fully God as well and conquering death, he destroyed the devil, the one who seemed to have the, the, the market on death. John Owen, John Owen the, the Puritan, that we read much of in Romans chapter 8, he he wrote, the primary reason for Christ taking our human nature was not to reign in it, but was to suffer and die in it. And in dying, conquering death through the resurrection, he conquered the devil. Yes, death is still here, but Christ has destroyed the one who had the power to hold it as a fearful thing over us. And John tells us in 1 John 3, 8, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. Okay, so this goes right in with Hebrews chapter 2. Why was the Son of God manifest in the flesh that he might destroy the works of the devil? And in verse 15 here in Hebrews 2, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. 
Did you hear about the man who was suffering from severe headaches? He tried everything. Tylenol, Motrin, aspirin, extra strength, AM, PM. Nothing worked. Headaches galore. And so finally, at his wife's insistence, he went to the doctor, got some brain scans, a series of cranial x-rays. And a couple days later, he went back in for the results. And the doctor looked at him and said, got some awful news. Your condition is terminal. The man cried out, needless to say. In shock, he looked up and said, Doc, tell me it isn't so. Are you sure? Yes. The results are conclusive. There's no doubt. Doc, I got to know how much time do I have left? And the doctor looked at him and said, 10. The man said, Doc, you got to be more specific. 10 years? 10 months? And the doctor said, 9. 8. Seven, okay. Like this doctor's patient, unless the Lord tarries, every one of us are going to die. The statistics are in, one out of one men die. One out of one women die. The odds are impressive at that. And so often, knowing that death is imminent, unless the Lord comes, we fear. In fact, It's death that robs so much of the joy out of life. That's what's being spoken of here, and that's what Paul speaks of. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54, he says that when Jesus rose from the the dead, he says that death no longer has sting. It was in the resurrection that the stinger was taken out. It was in the resurrection that there was no more bite to death. I love what Alistair Begg said today. Christ turns death around and makes it a portal, the entryway to heaven. We don't need to fear death anymore in Christ. Outside of Christ, there's much fear in death. Because then there's a certain fearful expectation of judgment and of the wrath of God that will one day be upon the sons of disobedience. There's much fear in death apart from Christ. But 1 Thessalonians tells us that when someone dies in Christ, there's comfort. And though we sorrow, we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. We know that that, that this is just a temporary absence from being in the presence of our loved one. We'll see them again. Death's condemning power was annulled by Christ-bearing death. One man said, Jesus declawed death and rendered it useless. Death is no longer a punishment. It's a graduation ceremony. And I remember when my dad died, we ended up having a graduation cake made for him. And we had a party. We had a celebration after his memorial service. It wasn't a wake. It was a celebration, knowing that we'd see him again. Verse 16 For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. I'd like to read just an excerpt from Spurgeon's sermon uh, from Hebrews 2. It says, after one portion of the angels had fallen, it pleased God to stamp their doom and make it fast and firm. But when man had fallen, it did not so please God. He'd threatened to punish him, but in his infinite mercy, he selected the major portion of the human race whom he made the object of his special affection, for whom he provided a precious remedy, to whom he covenanted salvation and secured it by the blood of his everlasting son. For the almighty son of God to have been clothed in the garb of even the archangel Gabriel, but his condescension dictated him that if he did stoop, he would descend to the very lowest degree that if he did become a creature, he would become not the noblest creature, but one of the most ignoble of rational beings. That is to say man. Therefore, he did not stoop to the intermediate step of angelship, but he stooped right down and became a man. There were, there were a couple of different excerpts put together. I hope that wasn't too confusing. The, pers- the first excerpt <clears throat> that I read was that, We had two, in in history of of creation, 
we've had two fallen beings. We had the angel fall through their Adam, Lucifer, right? A third of them fell away. And we had Adam fall and, and all come and inherited sin through him. And there was that fall. And yet God, not because we deserved it, but because of grace, 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 worked out a plan of salvation and atonement for this group. What's the reason? And and Spurgeon puts it well, and I encourage you maybe to go home and read it. I'll, I'll post the link. It's great. Where God, in his infinite grace, it would have been, you know what? It would have been easier for him to redeem the angels. It would have been worked out better for him to redeem the angels. It would have been easier, better. He would have less, had less of an enemy on his hands. A lot of different points that Spurgeon makes. But he chose in his grace and in his mercy to redeem us. Lucifer falls, the stamp, it's done. That third, they've fallen never to be redeemed again. Adam falls. And immediately, you have the proto-evangelion, the first gospel that lays out the plan of salvation of us. And in God's condescension and being man, and this is the second snippet that I, that I read to you, he didn't lower himself to become an angel. Now, when you've got God, Yahweh, and created angel, that's still a giant chasm. That's still a giant lowering of yourself. But he went even lower than that. He humbled himself way lower than that. He didn't, as Spurgeon says, didn't stoop to the intermediate of angelship. But he went even lower, right down to becoming a man. If God became an angel instead, he could have never made an atonement for man. He would never have been a fitting example for us. And you know what? If we're going to have an example, we need to have an example of our like kind, all right? And so that's why we have Jesus all throughout the scriptures. He is our model. We're to emulate him by the power of the Holy Spirit. If it would have been an angel, hey, could you be like Gabriel? I don't have Gabriel's DNA. It's like me trying to relate to a dog. It's like be like the dog. I don't know what a dog feels or how they think. We're on different wavelengths. We're different created things. But Jesus became a man so that we can model him, so that he could be the example. If Jesus would have become an angel, he could not have sympathized with us. In order to sympathize with fellow creatures, we must be something like them to fully sympathize. Because Jesus desired to be the groom to his dear church, the bride, he had to become a man. Spurgeon put it that manhood would have not been so honorable or so comfortable if Jesus would have just been an angel. Jesus never became an angel to redeem the angels, but he did become a man so that he might give aid to the seed of Abraham. If you will, flip over to Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. It says, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Good job, page flippers. Galatians 3, 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So we are the seed of Abraham. Why? And Galatians just puts it so well. He's our father. He's the first one who believed on the Lord, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So too, anyone who believes on the Lord will have righteousness put into his accounts. If you'll bear with me, Spurgeon again, manhood is a noble thing. For God worse manhood once. I think he meant God was manhood once. I don't know old English very well. Manhood is a glorious thing 
for it was the robe of the eternal. God was made flesh and dwelt among us. Therefore, flesh is dignified and glorified. As I said, it would not be so comfortable to be a man if Christ had not been a man. For I know that I must die. Now my comfort is that I shall rise again. But I should not have had the comfort if Christ had not been a man and if he had not died and risen again. In closing tonight in verse 17, we read that Jesus became a man so that he might be a sympathetic high priest. Let's read it. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I love this. The Latin word priest means bridge builder, which is what a priest is. He's an intermediary between God and man. And I have a picture up there, Tina. Could you throw the first picture up? It's this, if you've ever shared the gospel, there's a great track that looks something like this that you can give people. And you just simply can say, look, we're over here as mankind. And there's this great gulf, this great chasm that separates us from the glory of God, from the kingdom of God. And and sin is what separates us. It's sin that separates us from God. And there's only one thing that can bridge that chasm, and it is Jesus Christ. It's the work on the cross. And then you throw in the next picture. Jesus is that bridge he's the intermediary he's and that's what priest is he's the bridge builder between god and man we cannot make it across the chasm on our own it's the cross that bridges the gospel that's the wonder that bridges the gap it's the wonder of the gospel that jesus represents god to man and man to god we read that he makes propitiation as our priest for the sins of the people, propitiation. Raise your hand if you're familiar with that word, propitiation. It's a long word. It's a tough word to spell for sure. Propitiation properly signifies the removal of wrath by the offering of a gift. And back in the Old Testament, the high priest would offer this, this lamb to remove the wrath, remove the wrath, remove the wrath. And it was all a picture of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who would once and for all take away the wrath. This high priest made propitiation for the sins of the people. I love the original Greek here. It's that he might satisfy the wrath of God for the sins of the people. In this final verse, You see, Jesus became a man so that he could help those who were tempted. Let's read it together. Not really, but I'll read it. You look. Sometimes you have to preface that because it happens. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Jesus himself was tempted. Tempted to what? Tempted to drift. That's what the the devil's temptation was. That Jesus would drift away from the plan of God. Oh, Jesus, quit being so dramatic. Just bow down and worship me here. Just back off a little bit. I'll give you this and I'll give you that. Just back off. Jesus was tempted to drift away from the fullness of what God had. From the truth of the word and all the prophecies that would come and prophesy him coming. Hebrews 4.15, just flip over two chapters to 4.15. It says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why did Jesus become a man? Well, in one thing, he was tempted. He knows what it's like to be tempted, and now he can come and aid those who are tempted. We can run to the aid. And receive mercy and grace and help in time of need. Before there's ever the temptation, you go in the morning at first light and you come to the high priest. And you come to him for strength, to the one who was victorious over every temptation. It says there in chapter 4 that he was tempted in every way that we were, but he didn't sin. And so we go to him. Similar passage in Hebrews 5 verse 1. We don't have time tonight. But just to see how the high priest is just able to aid and minister for us. That word aid is succor. 
in the Greek, and it means to run when you're called for. It speaks of a physician. And we might know it from some of the war movies we've seen, or, or those of you that have been in battle or been in the, the military, you'd remember that whenever a soldier is wounded, he immediately cries out as soon as he's hit, or as soon as he sees his friend hit, he cries out what? Medic or corpsman. And you read the accounts, and those corpsmen, those medics, they were so faithful. They would go, and they weren't typically allowed to carry any firearm. They were there to aid. They were there to help. And they would run into the artillery fire. They would run into machine gun fire, and they would grab onto the wounded guy, and they would put the tourniquet on, and they would apply this and apply that and try to help that one who's in time of need. And the scripture tells us here tonight that Jesus is that medic. Jesus is that corpsman. That when we cry out in our time of need, he runs to our aid. And one of the translations says that this succor means to run to the cry of a child. We know it, don't we, we parents? When our child cries and they are injured and they're screaming or they're afraid, you run and you get there as fast as you can and you jump over whatever you can to get there. I was watching America's Funniest Home Videos with my kids. And, and there was this motorcycle course, motocross, right? All these mounds. And there was a little kid on a, on a little plastic uh, Hot Wheels, or what are they called? Power Wheels. And he's all, and he starts going up a really steep jump. And it stalls on him. And he goes backwards and, and falls over backwards. Enter in dad, sitting up on the top bleacher of this giant stand, this grandstand. Dad jumps to the aid, small problem, Dad's foot hits the top seat in front of him, and he goes end over end over end over end all the way down. The whole family is rolling. It's a picture of the gospel. I'll let you do the math, right, Kevin? You do the math. No. Jesus runs to us as a medic runs to the child, or he runs to us as a father or a mother runs to their child in their time of need. Remember that the next time you're tempted Better yet, remember that before the temptation ever comes. Spend time with the great high priest who knows what it's like to be tempted, yet he was without sin. We can have someone go and get the children to come in for our closing worship. But I hope you're getting it. Chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is better than the prophets. Chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is better than the angels because of his deity because he's God, he created the angels. Chapter 2 tells us that Jesus is better than the angels because he's a man. What angel ever knows what it's like to get tired or sleepy or feel pain or bleed or be rejected by a friend? But Chapter 2 verse 18 says of Jesus, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. He is able to help us in a way no angel ever can or will, because he's been where we are at. Jesus shared in the human experience, and he overcame the human dilemma. Because Christ is superior, we must beware of neglecting so great a salvation that he has paid for by becoming a man and suffering in our place. Let's go ahead and have the worship team come up. We'll just close our Bibles and Respond to God in worship tonight. Give stools back where stools need to be. Let's stand. Lord, we just want to humble ourselves tonight and As, as we're going to see in the book of Hebrews, just the Israelites who would witness miracle and miracle and miracle and miracle, yet they hardened their heart and they drifted away and they didn't walk in faith. And in one day, some 22,000 Israelites would fall because of disobedience, because of neglecting a great salvation. And there's a warning there in the people of Israel to us today. Lord, I pray for the people in this room and I intercede for our church as a whole. Lord, that you would fix our gaze on the cross. Lord, that you would stir up in us a diligence 
to be faithful to the word. Lord, to rightly divide the word of God in our preaching and in our teaching and our discipleship and our fellowship time, Lord, that we wouldn't misappropriate the text, Lord, that we wouldn't take text out of context, but Lord, that we would know your word, we would stand by your word, and that, Lord, for our body, Lord, you would just keep us near. Lord, we intercede for our church, God, that you would just keep us from drifting away, from being careless. And Lord, I'm so prone to that carelessness. So quickly could I wander, Lord. So quickly do I wander. Lord, keep us. Just tonight afresh, we want to dedicate ourselves and consecrate ourselves and bow ourselves down at the authority of your word. We want to spend time tonight worshiping you for your greatness and for your superiority. And hopefully, God, tonight you've stirred within us. Lord, you certainly have in me a heart of thanksgiving, Lord, for all the reasons you became flesh and dwelt among us. All the reasons we've learned tonight, Lord, we want to spend time responding to you and worshiping you. Even right now, Lord, just be our high priest and intercede for us. Pray for us right now. Thank you for the sacrifice that you made, high priest. Not the blood of bulls and goats, but the offering of a heifer, Lord. But the precious blood of yourself. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.